And I want to invite you to open your Bible to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're, we're winding down in the book of James. And today we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. Have you ever had something happen in life and you think, how am I supposed to respond to that? That's what James chapter 5 verse 13 through 18 addresses. Um, Probably most of our situations could fit in here. Uh, As James approaches the end of his epistle to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, he brings some closing thoughts. He first reminded his readers to wait patiently for the Lord, something other writers of Scripture do also. A reminder of the coming of the Lord motivates us as believers to live a life by faith. He moves from there to not grumbling about one another and the need to honor one's word is discussed. This morning we're going to consider verse 13 through 18. We're not going to make it all the way. Um, actually, this might be a good day for you guys. We might get out a little bit early. so that's Because I can't get into what I want to get into for next week because that would take too long. And, and so we might get out early, but um, we will see. Okay, uh, Verse 13 through 18 where the subject is calling out to God in life's situations. Calling out to God in life situations, and then the epistle of James will finish with a call to help the wayward. Let's look at verse 13 through 18. Let's just read that together. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain. And the earth produced its fruit. To the suffering, James says, pray. To the cheerful, he says, sing psalms. To the sick, he says, call for the elders. And then he highlights that one more. And then to all, he says, confess and pray. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. And so we're going to make it a little ways through this this morning. Um, We'll get the first two and begin on the second. And then we're going to kind of take a detour. Is anyone among you suffering, he says in chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering or troubled or afflicted? And what he says is, let that person pray. Let him pray. This wouldn't primarily be suffering for poor health. It could include that, but primarily it wouldn't be that because he's going to cover that in verse 14. And so he's talking about suffering or being afflicted or troubled. This would be suffering because... We live in a fallen, sin-filled world. And we don't have to look at very many media sources or the television. Anybody remember what a newspaper is? We don't have to look at the newspaper uh, very long to realize that there's suffering, that we live in a fallen world. Perhaps suffering because of the spiritual dynamic of the believer's relationship with Christ. Suffering because sometimes people around us are just plain mean. And we have to suffer as a result of that. Some situations are just difficult, like the rich who didn't pay the laborers 
earlier in this chapter. They worked all day, they worked all week. The rich overlords didn't pay them the way they should have, and so those that were poor suffered as a result of it. Suffering because somebody wrongly judged you, maybe even spread untrue rumors about you. Difficulties because your spouse isn't a believer or because your parents aren't believers with all of the ramifications that come with that type of a situation. Maybe even suffering because of poor decisions that you made and now you have to walk and uh, you have to walk through life with the consequences of those decisions because oftentimes we reap what we sow unless grace comes in and does something significant. Your tendency might be to complain and grumble, but rather than succumb to self-pity or anger or even being overly introspective. Why am I here? What should I do? What could I do to get out of here? Rather than succumbing to self-pity or anger or being overly introspective, it's not bad to evaluate why I'm going through what I'm going through, but I can get to the place where I evaluate it so much that it just paralyzes me. My wife used to tell me, if life was an onion, I'm peeling it one slice at a time, and in the end, I have nothing. Um, and so I can, I can tend to that. Remember this, Psalm 46, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Amen? Not in undeserved trouble, not in self-inflicted trouble. He is a very present help in all kinds of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. This is a hyperbole for saying everything in life is getting shaken up. I mean, my whole standard and foundation of life is getting shaken up. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble as at its swelling, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. James acknowledges the possibility of and the reality of suffering and affliction in the life of the believer. And so that idea out there that if I follow Jesus, life is just going to be wonderful. Well, I have wonderful days, and I have slices of some days that are more wonderful than the other slices of those days, but life isn't always wonderful. For the poor that were working for these rich scoundrels that wouldn't pay them for their wage, life was difficult. And James acknowledges that. The psalmist acknowledges that as well, reminding his readers that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So if you suffer, James says, pray. Pray. Bow your knee, however you pray. Drive it on the road. Don't close your eyes, please. But pray. The verb tense here is a continual act of praying. It isn't, it isn't a phrase that says, I throw my Godward concern upward, God help me in this, and then I'm finished. It's when it comes to my mind and I'm troubled, I pray about it again. I pray and I continue to pray, and tomorrow I might be praying about the same thing, and next month I might be praying about the same thing, and depending upon what the trouble is that you have, it might be your life pattern that you have to pray about that same thing. James says, pray. Every time the burden comes to mind, I pray through it. You remember Paul's thorn in the flesh, the one that's not really identified for what it is, says that he prayed three times, he didn't get deliverance from what he had prayed, and then he just went on with life because God's grace was sufficient for him. That's not what he's talking about here. 
not bad to pray three times and then just rest in God's grace. That's a good thing also. But what James is saying is every time this burden or trouble or distress comes to your mind, whether it's a day, a month, a year, a decade, continue to pray. Because we live in a, in a world that can offer us trouble. This one might not go away. Anybody have some of those? The testimonies could be given, couldn't they? Um, this one might not go away, or you might be praying through it for a long period of time. And James says, is anyone among you suffering, troubled, afflicted? Let him pray. What's my response when difficulties come? Well, I can whine. I can complain. I can point my finger at somebody else, and maybe even justifiably so, but what James's response is, um, spirit-inspired, is that should drive me to praying to my Lord. The second thing he says is, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Not just continue being happy, oh, this is a wonderful day, but, can, but, but sing psalms if we're cheerful. Psalm 40, and I could read so many. Psalm 40, verse 3 says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. 96, verse 1, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Psalm 95, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make joyful noise to Him with a song of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. There are so many, so many psalms and phrases in other places of Scripture that declare God's goodness and that we should sing to the Lord. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't understand somebody who won't sing to the Lord, who says they're a believer. God has placed a song in my heart and I, I, I see that Scripture, because of the presence of the Spirit of God, drives me sometimes to sing. You could ask Donna or ask my kids or ask my wife. I just walk around the house singing sometimes. And, and sometimes I'm singing to the Lord, and it's not even a spiritual song. What, what was the song that they sang? Where is, he's not here. But they sang a song at the, at the revival that they had at the cowboy. I think it was Elvira or something like that. Uh, but, but, but they were singing as unto the Lord. But he says, is anyone cheerful? That's creative. If anyone's cheerful, let him sing psalms. David was a man's man. He sang. All it takes is a joyful noise, a cheerful heart. Someone might say, well, I love Jesus, but I'm just not going to sing. Okay. But just know this. That's really weird. That God, nope, that God never, that's not in scripture, that God, <laughs> the Greek for weird is weirdos. No. <laughs> All right, let's get back here. That God never overwhelms you with his mercy and grace and love to the point of singing, even lifting a holy hand unto the Lord. That's really strange. Because God's love does that for me. Maybe it's because I look in the mirror, maybe it's that peel the onion thing, and I know who Jerry is without Jesus. And I know who I am because I understand Scripture and I'm growing in it, who I am in Jesus. And it puts a song in my heart. When you're cheerful and singing psalms, the psalms always point you Godward. It isn't just I'm happy because I'm having a good hair day. 
It's I'm happy because God is in control of my life, even the suffering portions of it, even the good portions of it, and my trust is in Him. He is my refuge and strength. It's about acknowledging the one who gave me the cheerful day. The first one, he says, is anyone suffering, pray. Is anyone cheerful, sing psalms. Chapter 5, verse 14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Now we're going to take a detour here rather than treat this completely. We're going to plan on doing that next week. But what I want us to talk about is I want us to look at some examples of anointing in Scripture. Because I think it's so, we know what it is, but I think that idea is so foreign to most of us that we, that, we don't, that we don't grab a hold of it as much as we do if I'm suffering, pray, or if I'm cheerful, sing psalms. Um, but he says here, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Anointing literally means rubbing someone with oil in the name of the Lord. It could even be translated after having oiled him, okay? To smear with oil is one Old Testament translation. I want us to look at some different biblical uses, uses, usage is <laughs> of anointing in the Old Testament. The first one I want to look at, and you might want to turn there, is Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. Let's just read a couple of verses in there. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 23 and 24, a recipe for what Scripture calls a holy anointing oil was given. Now, this anointing oil wasn't for people. This anointing oil, well, it was for a couple of people, but this anointing oil was especially for the tabernacle and the utensils that were used in the tabernacle. So the ingredients are given in verse 23, 24, very specific, very specific amounts. I'm not going to go into that. And then it says in verse 25, you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an anointing compound according to the art of the perfumer. So there was a specific group of people that would do this, it shall be a holy anointing oil, verse 26, with it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings with all of its utensils, and the laver and its base. You shall consecrate them that, that they, may be, the, that they be, may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me as priests. Was it necessary that these utensils and these individuals be anointed with this very specific oil in order for them to serve the Lord? Well, no, not if you want to logic and intellectualize your way through it. But yes, because God said, this is what I want you to do. Make this oil from these things and anoint these specific uh, things and these specific people. Look at verse 32. It shall not be poured on man's flesh. 
So this particular oil, only for Aaron and his sons, uh, and the, uh, the, 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 as the priests, this particular oil was not for, for everybody else. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. composition. It is holy. It shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds anything like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. So in this specific case, this anointing, most holy anointing oil was very specific in what it was going to be used for and who it shouldn't be used for. And so if I see Russ and I'm Aaron and I, and I think, you know, I like Russ and I'm just going to use this oil and anoint him. I think he could use it. He's, I know he could use it. And so, I run, and so I rub this oil on him. I'm cut off. Because I violated what God said to do. Just simplistic obedience. And so this one had a very specific application to it. There's another. Samuel first anointed Saul as king. And then David as the king of Israel as well afterwards. This would have been a different anointing oil. We don't have the recipe for this oil. It just tells us what it is and that he did it. In 1 Samuel chapter 10 verse 1, Samuel anoints Saul's head and kisses him and says... Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? So that was an example of Samuel the prophet anointing the king. Not all kings are described as having been anointed by oil. Perhaps they were, we don't know, but there are some very specific ones that, that are said to have been anointed with oil. First Samuel chapter 16, Samuel is told by God to fill your horn with oil and go, I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And we know that story. So he went and Jesse brought his sons one by one. And, and God said, no, it's not that one. No, it's not that one. No, it's not that one. And he said, do you have any others? Well, I got one more and he's out in the field and, and let's just sit down and eat until, until he gets here. And no, we're not going to sit. We're not going to eat until this job is accomplished. And that would have been David. Chapter 16, verse 11 says, Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him. For we shall not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, ruddy rather, with bright eyes, good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now that doesn't mean that David was just perfect, was a perfect teenager and then young man and a man in his life. He had his ups and downs. Um, he had his sin flesh as well. Um, and yet it says that the Spirit of God came upon David from that day forward and then Samuel took off. Elijah was told to anoint a king and a prophet. And the prophet that he would anoint to take his place was Elisha. Then Elisha, the anointed prophet, told one of his students to go anoint a new king. Someone might ask, did this action bestow a special power? Well, probably not, but it was in simplistic obedience to the Lord. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want it to be manifested. And so that's what Elijah and then in, in turn Elisha did. If God already knew who would be the predecessor of Elijah, why anoint him? If God already knew he would be king after a, who would be king after Ahab, Ahab why anoint that king? How about simplistic obedience? God said do it, and so we do it. I don't need to brain my way through why I do or don't do something. If God says it and it's clear, that should be enough. And simplistic obedience is something in submission to the Lord, something that's a, a worthy spiritual discipline. First Kings chapter 19, it says this, You and you, Elijah, 
shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Saphath of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint him as a prophet in your place. And then in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 1, this is what Elisha did. Elisha the prophet called one of the... Listen to this. What about, how about this for a ministry task? You've got to catch this. And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready. Take this flask of oil in your hand. So this guy's kind of like a seminary student, okay? Get this flask of oil in your hand. Go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look, therefore Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. So there's a room and they're all there. And he says, hey, come with me. And they go back into a room all by, all by themselves. Then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and, and say, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do, not de- and do not delay. Just get out of there because Ahab was the wicked king and Jezebel with his wife. And what, uh, what Elijah is saying, run for your life. Anointed, he anointed Yehu as uh, king in Ahab's place. I was reading an article this week about anointing and its various, use, various usages. And this is what it said. But first... You have heard me say from time to time that we need to be careful and filter what we, what we read and listen to Scripture. And that's what I had to do here. Th- these people weren't bad. It's a great article resource, but what they said was, was less than what should have been said. Um, that's what I had to do. This is what it says about what James chapter 5, verse 14 says. The church elders anoint the sick with oil for healing giving a historical comment, that's what he said. It's a little less than what James chapter 5, verse 14 says, but that's what they offered. Is anyone among you sick, James 5, 14 says, let, let, the, let them call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then this article asked the question, should Christians use anointing oil today? And it says, there is nothing in Scripture that commands or even suggests that we should use similar oil today, but neither is there anything to forbid it. And I'm thinking, did you just read James chapter 5, verse 14? And why is it that you're saying that there isn't anything in Scripture to suggest this? And so what they did is they, they're sitting on a fence and they're saying, well, you could do it if it's okay, if you want to, but you don't have to, and it's not really all that big of a deal either. They fell short of what James chapter 5, verse 14 has to say if we want to read it uh, for what it has to say. What it actually says is, if anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. We're going to deal with this next week. So this is part one, part two. Let them, as a matter of fact, this morning, Logan said, Pastor Jerry, if I get sick this week, I'm going to call you and have you anoint me. And I said, well, you might want to wait till next week. <laughs> so we'll see if I get a text. I think this is me. I think that the response of this article is a little reactionary to those who might seek to abuse anointing people that are sick with oil guaranteeing healing every time, all of the time, and so they shy away from James chapter 5, verse 14. And that happens an awful lot theologically. I kind of want to straddle the fence, and I don't want to say this really bad. You know, this is real strong, and I don't want to be over here either. I think that's what they do. Simplistic submission and obedience is good enough. If you're suffering, are you still going to pray? Well, of course you are. 
If you're cheerful, are you still going to sing psalms? Of course you are. Then if you're sick, why would we lift that one up out of the three and set it over here and say it's not useful anymore? Would we do that because they used medicinal oil? Well, they did, probably more than what essential oil has to say, nothing against essential oil. But why would we do that? Why leave anointing with oil out? Because it's not medicinal? Because someone else misuses it? A few years ago, a church in Oak Grove, First, First Oak Grove, Pastor Randy Messer was there, recently retired. Um, our men participated a few years in a row at men's retreats uh, up there. And Randy would always talk with those that would be receiving people at the front uh, after a message. And, and he would ask, he didn't impose, but he would ask, if you're an oil guy, is the way he would say it. If you're an oil guy, I want you to know that we have vials of oil so that you can anoint people in the name of the Lord. And there were some who did, and there were some who didn't. But justifying or intellectualizing why I'm not supposed to be simplistically submissive and obedient seems very dangerous. If I'm troubled, I'm going to pray. If I'm cheerful, I'm going to sing songs. Why would, Psalms. Why would I not? When I'm sick, especially when it might be sin sickness, just a little bit of a hint, especially when it might be sin, sin sickness, why would I not call for the elders of the church so that they could anoint me with oil? Concerning anointing, a little bit more, Jesus would say of himself in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, quoting Isaiah 61, because he, the Spirit of the Lord, has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set, the liberty, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Mark chapter 6, the disciples anointed the sick with oil. In the Gospels, chapter 6, verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. The primary reason, my opinion, the primary reason for this, Jesus answers to John the Baptist who was in prison. Listen to the conversation between the people that are going back and forth between John and Jesus. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. So at the very least, what was going on with the anointing of oil and the healing was a verification that Jesus was indeed the Christ. John and his disciples didn't need to look for someone else. They had found the Messiah. I don't see Mark 6 telling us to do that, go out into the streets, nor do I find James 5 giving us the authority to go and, and anoint all of the sick. If it is, let's go to the hospitals and let's just heal some people. But that doesn't mean that we get to eliminate chapter 5 verse 14 of James from Scripture either because it's there. And so I need to learn how to discern to rightly divide it and appropriately apply it as well. Just as a side note, when I was thinking about this, we might be surprised at how much demon activity there is in the United States anymore. It used to be when I was in Bible college that you would um, hear about third world countries and because it was very dark and the demon activity and, and things like that. Well, we have light darkness anymore. We want to call it light, but there's a lot of darkness. Can I just share this with you? I watched a short video this week of someone trying to convince people that Jesus was non-binary sexually. 
because he has Mary as a mother. He doesn't have a father, so he only has uh, Mary's chromosomes. Therefore, it's okay to be non-binary sexually. I don't think it's just a political statement. I think it's demonic. And, and, and so that's my opinion. Another example of anointing, first Nicodemus at Jesus' death, then the women went to Jesus' tomb to anoint his body. Nicodemus, it says in John 19, also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloth with spices, uh, as it as is the burial custom of the Jews, doesn't use, doesn't use the specific word of anointing, but that's what he did with those 75 pounds of uh, myrrh and aloes. In Mark 16, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him, another example of anointing. Another is the Holy Spirit is explained as the, anoint, as the anointing who is received by believers, those of us who are followers of Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, excuse me, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, a reference to the Holy Spirit and Jesus' promise to his followers from John chapter 14, verse 16, and chapter 16, verse 13, where Jesus said, I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world, world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells in you and will be with you. Back in James, that God invites a sick believer, for whatever reason, to call for the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord is an incredibly privileged instruction and invitation from God. He's saying, you are so special to me and so significant to me that when you're troubled, I want you to pray when you're cheerful, I want you to sing psalms. And if you're sick, I want you to call for the elders of the church who can anoint you with oil and pray a believing prayer of faith as well. He doesn't invite anyone else in the world to do that, but he invites the body of Christ to do that. It's not instruction for all of the sick of the world, but it is for those in the church. I can't help but wonder why it doesn't happen more often. Anointing happened to the tabernacle and its articles. We read of it for, for some of the kings and the prophets. It happened to our Lord, to some of, uh, who had received special grace from Him, those who received healing as the apostles uh, and the disciples were out anointing and healing, casting out demons. We need to understand this passage and not be content with standing on the fence or just explaining it away. We're not going to quit praying when we're troubled. We're not going to quit singing when we're cheerful. Why in the world would we ignore one-third of this, of this instruction? We pray. We sing psalms. Why should we not also use the anointing from the elders as a gift from God? I want to finish reading from the Gospels about two different times Jesus was anointed with oil during his earthly ministry. One is in a Pharisee's house. The other in a leper's house. It's not, the, it's not the same account being told two different ways. It's two different applications, two different times. Luke chapter 7 has one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. We find Jesus in a Pharisee's house. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, 
Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and, st- and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon. He turned to the woman, but he's still talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The other time that an alabaster uh, alabaster flask was used I find in Matthew 26 this is towards the end of Jesus's life when Jesus chapter 26 verse 6 when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it on his head and he sat at the table but when his disciples saw it they were indignant saying why this waste For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. You have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So we see anointing in Scripture from way back in the Old Testament all the way up through James. But Jesus was anointed in a very special way two different times by women with an alabaster flask of oil. Janet, come on up here.
The room grew still As she made her way to Jesus She stumbles through the tears Made her blind She felt such pain Some spoke in anger Heard folks whisper There's no place here for her kind Still on she came Through the shame that flushed her face Until at last She knelt before his feet And though she spoke no words Everything she said was heard As she poured her love for the master From her box of alabaster So I've come to pour My praise on him Like oil from Mary's alabaster box So don't be angry if I wash his feet with my tears And dry them with my hair Cause you weren't there the night he found me You did not feel what I felt when he wrapped his love Don't know the cost of this oil in my alabaster box. I can't forget the way life used to be. I was a prisoner to the sin that held me spent my days poured my life without measure to a little treasure box I thought I'd found until the day when Jesus came to me and healed my soul with the wonder of his touch so now I Giving back to him all the praise he's worthy of. I've been forgiven, and that's why, that's why I love him so much. I've come to pour my praise on him with oil from Mary's alabaster box. So don't be angry if I wash his feet with my tears And I dry them with my hair You were there the night Jesus found me You did not feel what I felt when I felt his loving all around me and you don't know the cost of this 
Friday. What a privileged place we have that we're told when we suffer, we can pray to God. And when we're cheerful, we can sing psalms to him. And when we're sick, we can invite the elders to come and pray for us. You ever been to the place where you're just in so much despair, you just can't even pray? That's what he's talking about. What a privileged place we have. And the woman in Luke chapter 7 recognized who she was and who the Lord was. And she loved much because she had been forgiven much. And Matthew 26, the woman there was anointing Jesus for his burial, which would be for the salvation of all of those who would call upon the name of the Lord. Do you know the Lord? You need to be anointed from on high. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. Let the woman from Luke chapter 7 be a testimony that maybe draws your heart to the Lord. 